Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, to change gears a little bit, an epic showdown is now less than one month away. It's like these two trains that have been marching toward this head-on collision since 2009, and after six years, a date has finally been set. Uh, Now, if you follow sports at all, even casually, you might know uh, what I'm talking about, and even if you don't follow sports, you may have heard that Manny Pacquiao, Uh, who is a Philippine boxer, world champion boxer, will be taking on undefeated world champion boxer Floyd Mayweather on May 2nd in Las Vegas. This may not mean a lot to you if you're not a sports fan at all, but this this boxing match is historic. I mean, it's like Ali and Frazier of this generation. And uh, this boxing match will go a long way to define the lasting legacy of each of these fighters. I'm not a big boxing fan. I don't know if I'll watch the fight, but, but it is epic. But as epic and legacy-defining as this fight will be, it is trivial and inconsequential in comparison to a confrontation that took place 2,000 years ago. And this took place not under the neon lights of Las Vegas, but in a small backwoods village about 25 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. It took place in a little town called Nain, In that town called Nain, a procession of death and sorrow collided with a procession of life and hope. A family that was ravaged with the reality and pain of death encountered a man who would confront death head on in order to defeat it. In a little town called Nain, there was a confrontation literally between life and death. It was life versus death in this little town called Nain. And the reason that's important is because we this morning are called to participate. We're called to be participants in the hope and the joy and the victory of life at Nain through the resurrection power of Jesus on this Easter morning. And this epic battle between life and death is recorded in the Gospel of Luke and only in Luke's Gospel in chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd ask that you open them and turn to Luke chapter 7, 11 through 17. If you're not able to follow along in your Bibles, uh, the text will be on the screen here before you. So you can follow along there if you want. So Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17 this morning. Uh, Let's rise for the reading of God's Word. This is God's word to us this morning. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. 
Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the reading of God's word this morning. May he add his blessing to it. You can be seated. Now, note that this text begins with soon afterward, because what happens just prior to this is Jesus leaves the region of Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, where he had just healed a centurion's servant, and a centurion who had displayed remarkable faith. Now, Jesus begins to head south, and we read that his disciples and a great crowd went with him, likely with this great buzz of excitement after they had witnessed Jesus' healing of this centurion's servant. But as they draw near to this gate at the city of Nain, their enthusiasm is overshadowed by something dark and gloomy. It's a funeral procession. They encounter this other group of people in the midst of the greatest crisis. And so the first thing that we see in our text is crisis. We read about this in verses 11 and 12. It's crisis, crisis of death, and grief. Now, junior, Jew, Jewish funeral processions at the time of Jesus were marked chiefly by expressions of grief, often led by professional mourners who would wail in loud shouts of agony and often accompanied by musicians who would play funeral dirges on flutes and cymbals. And Luke tells us here that there's a considerable crowd from the town participating in this crisis of death and grief. Now, of course, Most funerals, even today, are still marked chiefly by expressions of grief, and understandably so. But especially when they involve the kinds of circumstances that we see on this particular occasion. Luke gives us a couple details about the grief and the crisis involved at Nain on this occasion. The first thing that he tells us is that the one who's being carried out to be buried is the only son of his mother. Now, the language that Luke uses through this narrative would would suggest that this son is probably less than 20 years old. Less than 20 years old. And all funerals are difficult. We grieve it at all these losses, but perhaps the most difficult is burying a child. Burying a child. I can't imagine the pain and the grief that is involved in such a thing. In the words of the famous psychologist Carl Jung, The death of a child is a period placed before the end of the sentence. It just, it doesn't fit. There's there's something out of order. Parents are not supposed to bury their children. But that's what's happening to this woman. This woman must lead to the grave and place in the ground the one that she had brought forth into life. It's the only son that she had. She must endure the overwhelming pain of looking at this still, lifeless body of her only son, the boy that she rocked, the boy that she bounced on her lap. Those hands that she held as she taught him to walk are now cold and still and pale. And all the hopes and the dreams that she had for this child have now resulted only in this nightmare where she recognizes that there will be no more conversations with him There'll be no more sound of his voice, no hearing his laughter. There won't be anything, just silence, painful silence. And she knows that the days ahead will be marked by Herculean efforts to build some sense 
of normalcy out of cards in her life and some kind of composure that needs to be maintained, which will come crashing down in a moment because a memory has been triggered by a million things that surround her in her life and make her think about her son. She knows this is what's in store for her in the days and months ahead, and she knows this because she's experienced this pain and grief and loss before. She's been in funeral processions before because the other detail that Luke gives us about her is she's a widow. Before death claimed her only child, it also claimed her husband. And so likely because the the child is is young, probably younger than 20 years old, she lost her husband early in life, this woman's probably 35 years old, somewhere around then. And in a culture and a time when women are almost completely dependent for provision and support upon men, and particularly close relatives, the fact that she's lost her husband and now her only son leaves her not only deeply grieving, but leaves her feeling destitute and hopeless and alone in her grief and in her crisis. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you know this crisis because you've been there before. And I know some of you know the crisis because there's lilies on the platform this morning commemorating the loss of loved ones, trying to find some way to continue to remember the loss, and to express the grief. Some of you are there now in this crisis of grief and hopelessness and loss and suffering. But what we really need to face, all of us this morning, is that this crisis will inevitably reach all of us. We'll all have to face this crisis. It's not a question of if we'll face a crisis of grief and death and loss. It's a question of when. Because this pain that we see at Nain, the pain of Nain, could be seen going out of any city at any part of the world at any time. It might always look exactly like this in its details, but some of these details are inevitable. If you're married, odds are that one of you, highly likely, that one of you will be burying the other in the ground at some point in time. If you're married, you can look next at your spouse and think one of us is going to bury the other. That's the likely outcome. Some of you don't have someone to look at next to you because you've already endured that. You've already gone through this crisis of burying a spouse and you're widowed or a widower. And I pray that no one here is ever faced with burying a child like this woman. But the reality is If you're not burying your children, your children will be burying you. That's inescapable. It's one of those two scenarios. I mean, if if this widow had not been having her son committed to the ground, at some point in time, he would have been burying her. It would have been his grief and not hers. And of course, as Bob already mentioned, after the Old Testament reading, eventually we're going to be the ones being carried out to be placed in the ground being touched by the infection of death. No one is getting out of here alive. No one is getting out of here unscathed by this crisis of death and pain and loss. That's my crisis, and that's your crisis. I thought this was Easter Sunday. 
proclamation of good news, is there any comfort to be found in the face of this reality? Well, the answer to that question is yes. There is comfort to be found in the face of this reality, and it's found in one who is coming as part of the other crowd to this gate of Nain. This comfort comes from the response of Jesus. What was Jesus' reaction to this crisis, to this scene of death and grief and loss and suffering? What was his reaction to this widow in her distress? Well, we see in verse 13 that when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. So the second thing we see this morning is compassion in verse 13. Luke uses a strong Greek term to describe Jesus' feelings on this occasion. Perhaps we could say that when Jesus saw her, it punched him in the gut. You've felt that kind of pain and sorrow before, haven't you? I mean, it just socks you right in the stomach. So death has delivered the first blow, and he hits Jesus right in the gut. The um, paraphrase translation found in the message, some of you, you know the message Bible, it's a paraphrase translation, says, when Jesus saw her, his heart broke. That's really an accurate description of what Luke is conveying here with this language. When Jesus saw her, his heart broke. Jesus was deeply moved and touched in the face of this crisis. And Jesus hurts in the face of this woman's sorrow and pain and loss. He's not untouched by it. He's not aloof. He's not indifferent. He's moved to compassion. And that's how Jesus responds. There's, there's all kinds of ways that people would respond in seeing this. And, and like today, back then, people would have wondered what someone must have done to call down these kinds of catastrophes upon oneself. What kinds of sins must this woman have committed to lose her husband and now have God take her only son from her? What has she done that God would be punishing her like this? Why is God angry with her? But notice, Jesus doesn't think like that at all. We don't get any kind of indication that this is going through Jesus' mind. He simply responds with compassion. So Jesus doesn't attach stigma to her loss. He doesn't attach any fault to this woman that has resulted in the pain and the suffering that she's going through. He doesn't attach any stigma to the son who has died either. In fact, not only does he not attach stigma, he doesn't offer any theological explanations or biblical rationale for her loss at all. He doesn't try to explain why she's going through this. He responds in compassion. I mean, if anybody could have been theologizing at this point, in these circumstances, it could have been Jesus to explain what's going on here. I mean, isn't that what we often feel compelled to do? When people are in the midst of crisis, we want to provide some kind of answer to help them make sense of it. And we often just give these vending machine answers that are not real helpful for people in their pain and their grief. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't theologize here. What we learn is not that he provides all these explanations. What we learn is that Jesus cares deeply about people in the midst of crisis and grief and loss. Notice also that Jesus isn't responding to any explicit display of faith on the part of this woman at all. Jesus doesn't require her initiative in her loss. 
He simply, out of his heart, responds to human pain and grief. Remember that Jesus had just come from healing this centurion servant, where in that particular instance, we have this eloquent display of poise and clarity and protocol and faith. We don't see any of that here. Just pain and tears. But all the initiative here is taken by Jesus toward this woman. And it teaches us that Jesus doesn't reserve his compassion for those who are able to say the right things. For those who are able to feel the right things. He doesn't reserve his compassion for those who are important or who are famous or who come from the right towns. He is near to the broken hearted. He reaches out to this widow in compassion. That's good news for us, isn't it? Because if I'm honest with myself, I'm far more like this widow in her weakness and confusion than I am like the centurion in the strength of his faith. But this confrontation, ultimately, it reflects the heart of Jesus. He responds with compassion because that's how Jesus is. But don't forget that what we see reflected in Jesus' heart is also a revelation of the heart of God himself. God feels compassion in the face of human grief and loss. Listen, God is not cold or calloused or uncaring in the midst of your affliction. His sovereign hand is in it, right? We know that. But he's not cold. He's not detached. He's far from indifferent or apathetic to your suffering. His heart is moved with compassion. While he may not offer you theological explanations for what you're going through, this we can be assured of because of the heart of Jesus displayed here, that the Prince of Peace is present to you and no other peace can be found. The King of Hope is your companion in the most hopeless of your circumstances. And the Lord of Life is beside you, even in the crisis of death. That's what we can cling to when we see the compassion of Jesus at Nain. And, you know, because our God, our God is a God of compassion and caring in the face of human suffering and pain and hurt, we also ought to be a people of compassion. Regardless of stature or prestige, we ought to be a people of compassion as divine image bearers. But, you know, most of us, I think, would feel compassion on this occasion if we saw this. I'd like to think that most of us would, would feel compassion in this situation. I mean, we pull our cars, our cars off to the side of the road when a funeral procession is going by. We're compassionate for the most part. I think all of us need to grow in our compassion. But is that all Jesus is offering on this occasion? The same kind of compassion that we would be able to offer? I mean, it's all Jesus do is, is come alongside and, and offer some encouraging words for comfort or some sage advice when we need support or direction? I mean, is that all that's happening here? Those things are good. Those things are good. But it hardly resolves the crisis of the grave. It doesn't really get rid of the crisis. Well, Luke doesn't just tell us what Jesus feels, though. He tells us what Jesus says. He feels compassion, and then he says to this woman, do not weep. That does sound like something I would say, because I get uncomfortable around people's pain, and I don't want them to be weeping in front of me, so I would say, please, don't cry. 
But that's easy to say, right, when it's not happening in my life, when it's not my son that's being buried, when these are not my circumstances. But Jesus isn't saying it because he's uncomfortable, and he isn't saying it because it's not legitimate to weep in the face of death. That's not why he's saying it. Jesus himself at the grave of Lazarus in John 11, he weeps. He's not saying it because it's illegitimate either. Jesus says it for completely different reasons. Here's why Jesus says, do not weep. It's because he's going to fix the problem. The same reason I tell my daughter not to weep when she comes to me with some kind of broken toy or a tear in her doll. Don't cry, honey. Daddy can fix that. Jesus is going to fix it. Jesus resolves the crisis because his compassion leads to his conquest. And that's the third thing we see in this passage, verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, we read that he comes up and he touched the bier, and the bear stood still. Now, just so you get the picture, they didn't have closed caskets like we have today. This young man would have been carried out to his place of burial on a, on a flat, wooden, open plank. Um, it's referred to as a coffin in the NIV, but, it, but it's open. The body would have been wrapped up in cloths, uh, kind of like a mummy, would have been completely covered. But as this procession went out to the place of burial, the body would have been visible. That wrapped body would have been visible. And violating all kinds of social customs and sensitivities, Jesus, as a complete stranger, just invades the space and progress of this funeral procession. Just walks right up to the coffin, he touches it, and the whole party stops. But, but I don't want you to miss this. This, this, is, this is the scene. The confrontation has now reached its apex. The foes are face to face, life confronting death. That's what's happening. That's the magnitude of what's happening here. And so Jesus has already been hit in the gut, right? So now Jesus responds by taking his own swing, but it's a verbal swing. It's a verbal jab. This is what he says. Young man, I say to you, arise. Wait, what? What did he just say? I mean, does, does he understand the situation? You, can't, you have to wonder if there's laughter or chuckles in this funeral procession when he says this. Does Jesus not realize that this guy is dead? Or does this guy actually think he has the power to bring the dead back to life? I say to you, arise. But if people laughed when he said it, they didn't laugh for very long. Luke doesn't tell us anybody laughed. But if there was any laughter at all, didn't last very long, because what we read right after that in verse 15 is that the dead man, not a sick man, not an unconscious man, not a swooning man, the dead man, he was dead. And at the voice of Jesus, he sat up and began to speak. I mean, he's not just brought back to life. He's, he's restored to full health and consciousness and awareness. He begins to speak. Jesus speaks on this occasion. This young dead man speaks on this occasion. But I've got to be honest with you. As I've thought about this for two weeks, I'm at a loss for words that capture the magnitude and enormity and beauty of what we're seeing right here. I don't know how to express this in words, what we're seeing here. The dead come back to life at the power of Jesus' voice. And the one thing we can say here is that there is power in his word. There is power in the word of God. Power in the word that Jesus speaks. 
mean, remember that it was the word that brought everything in creation into existence when God spoke. Jesus himself has calmed the raging sea with his voice, and now the word goes out. The word made flesh speaks, and the dead obey. And death releases its captives. There's power in the voice of Jesus. There's power in the word for you this morning. There is new life in the word for you this morning. Turn to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him who raises the dead and gives them new life. That's the power of the word of God for his people. But notice that Jesus could have only spoken, but he also touches the coffin. He could have just spoke. From, from whatever distance he was from the possession, he could have said, from the procession, he could have said, young man, I say to you, arise. But he goes up and he touches the coffin. Now, according to Old Testament law, you can read something like Numbers chapter 5, verse 2, that this would have rendered him unclean, according to the law. A high priest was prohibited from even entering a room with another dead body in it without becoming unclean, even if it was his parents in the room. A high priest would have become unclean. It was ingrained into the Jewish mind that holy people do not come into contact with the dead. You just don't do that unless absolutely necessary. You don't go up and touch a coffin. But Jesus was willing to place his hands where no one else dared touch. And here's why. It's because Jesus was willing to become infected with uncleanness and death in order that he could infect others with his life. Jesus was willing to become infected with death and uncleanness and sin so that he could infect the dead and the dying with his life. So not only is there power in his word, there is atonement in his touch. There is healing atonement that restores to life in his touch. These events at Nain, really, they give us a preview of what would happen on Good Friday when Jesus took upon himself uncleanness and sin and became infected with that sin and death so that he could die on a cross paying the penalty that sinners owe to the justice of God. There's a preview of that here. There's also a preview of Easter where Jesus would conquer death through his own resurrection. And through his conquest over death, he anchors our hope that all who look to him by faith have the hope of resurrection life. It anticipates Good Friday, it anticipates Easter and his own resurrection, but it also anticipates that day that's coming when Jesus will usher us into a place where there will be no more death and no more weeping. That's why he can say, do not weep, because a day is coming when there will be no more weeping. That's what Revelation talks about. No more death, no more weeping. And this miracle anticipates that coming time. In a miraculous display of God's grace and mercy, God restored her only son to this widow. Jesus gives her son back to her. But he's only able to do that because God was willing to give up his only son on the cross so that he might claim that life back again through his resurrection and give life and hope to us. Jesus gives, God gives this woman her only son back to her because he was willing to give his only son up at the cross. At the gate of this little village, the wages of sin, Bob talked about it already, the wages of sin, which is death, was coming out of this town. And at the same time, it's intersected by the sacrifice of sin, the Lord of life, going in. 
There's this battle between life and death. And what this tells us is life is victorious. Jesus faced down death with compassion for those who are affected by it, and by his power enters conquest, came out in conquest. So that means our frailty, our mortality, our grief, our loss, our death is not the final word because of the presence of Jesus who came into this world to give his life and to be raised up again that we might have the hope of life. It's not the final word because of the presence of Jesus and his resurrection power. I'd be remiss if I failed to note these final verses, verses 16 and 17, that tell us that this miracle caused the people to glorify God. And the report spread about this all over the region. That God had, God had visited his people. So spread the good news of Easter. The best news that Jesus is victorious over death and the grave. If you're a Christian this morning, don't keep that good news to yourself. Tell people who are in crisis of the compassion of Jesus and his conquest over the grave. Tell people. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not following Jesus, you can turn to him this morning and know that he will receive you with compassion. Jesus has a compassionate heart. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have all the right words. You don't have to have the right formula, the right steps to go through. Your life doesn't have to be all cleaned up. You can find yourself in the midst of the darkest valley. You can find yourself in confusion and grief and pain and guilt and regret. You can be really messed up. But Jesus shows compassion to the brokenhearted. And you can turn to him now in faith and know that he will receive you in that compassion and that he can restore to you all that you've lost. He can restore every joy that you've lost and more so and secure your life eternally through his resurrection power. You know, we can mistakenly believe that we're in the land of the living on our way to the land of the dying. But actually, in reality, we're in the land of the dying, longing to reach the land of the living. And here's the good news of Easter. There's a way to the land of the living. And it's through Jesus, risen from the dead. He is the way. He's the truth. He's the resurrection. He's the life. We worship him and we celebrate him, risen from the dead this morning. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are not a God who is indifferent and stands aloof in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our crisis, and even the crisis of the grave, but that you are merciful and loving and compassionate. And Father, you've sent your Son to conquer sin and death for us. Lord, work faith and joy and hope and victory in our hearts and our lives as we continue to celebrate Jesus risen from the dead today and all the days ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.